Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll be reading verses 4 through 8. If you're visiting with us this morning, that can be found on page 1021 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in inequity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail, whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest again, we do welcome you this morning and encourage us that you're here and we want to be an encouragement to you. We're also thankful that this morning we'll have Alan Cantrell back. Is Alan in the audience at this service? Uh, it is good to have him back from Brazil. He has been there all summer. He is participating this year as our first Mount Juliet Missions intern. And it was a great success, and we're thankful that he's home. Last year, he went over for just a few weeks, and so these two weeks, these two summers combined, he's been over uh, 15 weeks in Brazil and has done a tremendous job working with Let's Start Talking with other parts of the work. And then uh, the picture there, you see him baptizing Magali, and Magali was a, or is, a next-door neighbor of the Fowlers, and so she has been coming to Bible studies and worship uh, for several years, and they have a deep and a good relationship with her, and she made the decision the week before, or the week that, that Alan was leaving, she made the decision that she wanted to become a Christian, she asked him to baptize him, uh, baptize her, and what a great, great uh, opportunity that is, we welcome her as a sister in Christ, and we're thankful for the good work uh, that Alan has done. You know, uh, I guess in the public speaking world, you'd call it stage presence. I don't know if you call that water presence, but what about that? Right in the middle of a baptism, uh, looking right there at the camera, kind of interesting there. Uh, you talk about a calm fella. Uh, I was amazed when I saw that picture for, I think, maybe one of his first baptisms. I couldn't help but think maybe some of those, those chisel lessons that we have on the mechanics of baptism. Maybe that's paying off right there. Uh, but, but Alan has done a tremendous job this past summer, and we're thankful for his life and for all that he continues to do and, and very hopeful and high expectations of what uh, he will do in God's service throughout his life and we're thankful for him and his family. Also, uh, Philip has already mentioned it, but this evening will be our back to school service. It's such a special time. We, we place an emphasis on what God wants us to be, whether we're adults or students in our school system and we pray a lot about that and, and it's just a wonderful time this evening so we look forward to that time and, and uh, we... We uh, do hope and pray that all of you involved in the school system uh, will be that salt and that light in the school system. As long as we have Christians in the school system, there will always be talk about God. There will always be prayers being said at school. And there will always be that Christian example. And we're thankful for that and just want to encourage you in that. Do continue to pray for Don Humphrey and Daniel Nordstrom on their mission trip to South Sudan. Also continue to pray for the Kefs as uh, the process is continuing to move forward. The children this week had to make the decision if they wanted to be adopted and in so doing you 
Ukraine requires that they write a letter in their own handwriting stating that they want to be adopted. Now, it wasn't an easy decision to make. It's, uh, you know, if you can imagine the idea of, of uh, saying a final farewell to your biological family. And, uh, and so pray for those children uh, as they make that decision and as they go through that transition in their life. And of course, the adoption process isn't close to being final, but things continue to move forward and let's continue to pray for them. We want God's will to be done in the lives of those children and of the Kess family. Love is so easy to misunderstand. Some of you may have noticed news reports back a couple of weeks ago. It was out of Orange County, California. There were dolls showing up at random houses. And what made it a little bit creepy was it was dolls of houses that only had little girls living there. And oftentimes the dolls' hair color and eye color matched the little girls that lived in the house. One of the parents said it reminded us of a horror movie. Well, obviously the sheriff's department started receiving several calls. And so they began an investigation and the sheriff's department even sent out a public cry for help to say if anyone knows anything about this situation, please come forward. Well, no one came forward, but as they did their own investigation, what they found out was that all of the recipients of the dolls went to the same church. And as they did further investigation, what they found out was that there was an elderly lady that just wanted to do something nice for the little girls in the church. But when she heard about it on the news, the stir that it was making, she stopped delivering the gifts, but she was too afraid to come forward. And so one that spoke on behalf of the sheriff's department said, chalk it up to a good deed that just went wrong. Well, what went wrong about it? Oh, you could say there's several things that went wrong about it, but ultimately it was just all a big, what? Misunderstanding. Listen, there are so many things that we bring into our life and there are so many things that are already problems that we approach in life that they all could be at least better if we truly understood what is love as it is taught by God. It's interesting as we think about this topic of love. Love is from God. You remember we read last week the very fact that love, that God is love. Love originates from God. And so if we want to know about God, we're going to also have a pursuit of love so that we can know how God would expect us to interact with the people in our lives, whether friends, family, or even enemies. But it's also interesting to note that throughout the centuries, every century, there have been many documents, books, songs, and poems written about love. So no matter what you've read and no matter what you've understood through the years, here is my plea to you over the next few weeks. Are you willing in a sense to erase your mind from all the things that has been said about love and are you willing to say, I don't know anything about love until I listen to what God has said about love? And it's interesting because the way God is going to talk about this love that is agape, he's not going to talk about feelings or emotions. He's not going to talk about philosophy. He's not even really, in a sense, going to talk about attitude. What he's going to do over and over and over is he's going to talk about doing. What are you going to do? 
When someone is nice to you, what are you going to do? When someone around you achieves something better than you've achieved, what are you going to do? When someone hurts you, what are you going to do? When someone gossips about you, what are you going to do? When there's been a huge misunderstanding, what are you going to do? Listen, love is the answer to all of those. But we have to realize that God always uses love in this sense as a, as a verb. When you take the text that's just been capably read in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and our English translations, those are translated as adjectives. But that's not so in the Greek. In the Greek, all 15 of those descriptions, notice I didn't say definitions, all 15 of those descriptions are verbs. The truth is there's not a place in the scripture where the Lord says, let me define love for you. I don't know if it's because it's so broad or so intricate. I don't know why God doesn't just simply define love. But I tell you what he does do in 1 Corinthians 13 chapter is he gives us the best description that we have of verbs that would make up love. And so I want to ask you, today and over the next few weeks, will you come and sit in the worship service and listen to the preaching and the study of God's Word just to say that you've been here, check mark? Will you come and say, I think my life's pretty good and I think I love as much as anybody else loves and, and I'm all right and I'm good? Are you willing to come and say, whatever I learn that God says about love, I'm going to go out this week and I'm going to live it no matter what it costs and no matter what it requires of me to change. I will this week love the way God has taught me to love. It is a high and a beautiful standard. You remember last week we looked at 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, verse 1, 2, and 3, and we talked about the motive of love. You remember that in those first three verses, he continued to talk about whether it was the gifts that you use, or whether it was literally selling everything that you have and giving it to the poor, or even giving your body to be burned. If you do any of those things without love, he continually said, it is nothing Life minus love to God is nothing. And so with that in mind, we also think about the very setting of 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And we know that 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, is in that book of 1 Corinthians where Paul is addressing problem after problem after problem. And there's no doubt that love is the answer to the problem that begins to be addressed in the, in the 12th chapter. And that is there was an arrogance in the way that they were using their spiritual gifts. And he was showing them that's not the way you interact with each other. I'm better than you. My gifts that I have is more important than your gifts. I ought to be considered by the church as more important than you. And so what he does is he gives us the 13th chapter to say, let me show you how to use your gifts. Let me show you how to interact with others. And it's not that arrogant, pride-filled way. Instead, it's love-filled. But really, this is the answer to all of the problems that we've been studying throughout 1 Corinthians. And so now we go into this description here. And I'll remind you what we closed with last week. When we see this picture here, a lot of the time we can't help but say, oh, isn't that lovely? Isn't that a loving picture? And brethren, it's wonderful when we have people in our lives that we feel good about and we feel close to, but the reality is even those that we feel good about, I guarantee you that cat and dog stays together long, they're going to have a spat. 
What are you going to do when everything isn't so lovely? What are you going to do when everything doesn't feel so good? What are you going to do when that person you have to interact with, you've never felt lovely with them? Well, you remember when Jesus decides to give us one of the greatest chapters of love in the Bible, we could rank 1 Corinthians 13 and John 13 as two of the greatest chapters in the Bible about love. And you remember Jesus' teaching about love was, let me take and do that humble act of service and wash your dirty feet. Oh, and by the way, I'm on the way right now to die on the cross. They're going to mar me so bad you probably won't even be able to recognize me. They're going to kill me on that cross. Why am I serving you? Why am I dying for you? I give you a new commandment, he says, between those two events. I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And he closes that next verse by saying, and by this will all men know you are my disciples. Why? Because no one in the world will ever love the way a Christian is supposed to love. People in the world will sometimes love the way a Christian loves, but never consistently. That's what makes the difference in Christianity. If we truly are practicing love the way it ought to be, we do it all the time. And we do it toward all people, even those that are hurting us. And that's what makes this love such a high calling. If you have your Bible open, notice in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, in verse 31, the very last sentence in 31 is where Paul says, And now I show you a more excellent way. As we go into this study, and even over the next few weeks, I want you to continually think about that more excellent way where our fleshly nature would choose to respond in a lot of different ways. And God is saying, no, I want you to choose, because that's where behavior comes from. Behavior, the verb, the doing, Behavior comes from making choices. How are you going to choose to react? How are you going to choose to respond? What are you going to choose to say? What are you going to choose to think? What are you going to choose to do? All of these are choices. And over and over in this chapter, what Paul is going back to is that more excellent way. And he's saying, I want you to choose this excellent way. All right, what, what is this excellent way? Well, what's interesting is this excellent way is actually a portrait of Jesus. I know a lot of times we think about the Gospels when we want to read about Jesus, but do you realize that if you take the text that was just read, 1 Corinthians 13th chapter, 4, 5, 6, 7, in the very beginning of 8, do you realize that is a portrait of Jesus? That is exactly the way Jesus lived upon this earth. And so it's amazing to think that if I could truly, this week, in every way, in every circumstance, situation, interaction with people, this week, if I could truly live out perfectly, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, I would look just like Jesus. You know, you see someone and you're around someone, you say, wow, they remind me of someone. Who is it they remind me of? Literally, if anyone knew Jesus and we lived out love, people would say they remind me of how Jesus would act if he were on this earth. What a beautiful, beautiful standard. And so what is the first? This morning we're only going to look at the first two descriptions, the first two characteristics of love. And the first one is, he says, love suffers long. This idea of suffering long is patient. It is the idea of while taking in injury, we do not retaliate. 
Let that sink in. As a biblical concept, it's easy to understand. When it's Monday morning and you're at work or at school, it's a much more difficult thing to understand. To suffer long is to take in injury without retaliating. And this is the more excellent way to live. Wow. Where is the feel good in that? Where's the warm, cozy feeling in that? This is a high standard of love. And here the first description is, when other people are hurting you, I want you to take it and not retaliate. We'd never do that by our fleshly nature. The only way we would do that if we truly were Christ. As a matter of fact, in that day and time that that was said, the Greeks, they would boast of the fact of vengeance. It proved your manhood to be able to put people back in their place. And you know, we're not a lot different today in America. Oftentimes, people are placed as heroes. People are looked up to. The talk is, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? Wow, he put him in his place. But what does the Lord want? The Lord says, I want you to be willing to suffer long in Matthew, the 26th chapter, Jesus is about to be under arrest. The only perfect person that's ever lived is about to be under arrest. Peter pulled out his sword. And you remember that Jesus did not say, Get him, Peter! Instead, Jesus suffered long. A portrait of Jesus. And remember, he even told Peter in verse 52, he said that if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And then in verse 53, he made this awesome statement. Or do you think that I cannot pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now I know, I guess you chalk it up to poetic license. We sing a song. He could have called how many? 10,000 angels. That's not what the scripture says. A legion could vary in number, of course. But legion was usually, at the minimum, 3,000. He turned and Jesus said, Don't you know I could call more than 36,000 angels right now? And one angel could do far more than what Jesus needed that day to be delivered from that situation. Do you realize 36,000 angels right now could destroy America's military before the sun went down without a batting of the eye? Do you realize the power that Jesus is talking about when he says, Peter, you're going to pull out your sword? Don't you realize that right now, if I wanted to retaliate, I have at my disposal, just all I do is pray. I just say the word. And thousands upon thousands of angels that could decimate this world could come down and put everybody in the place just like I want them. What? Put in their place. That's what retaliation is. I have a right to be comfortable and you're violating my comfort. I have a right to be happy and you're making me unhappy. And now I have the power to make you uncomfortable. I have the power to make you unhappy. And so instead of suffering long, I'm going to retaliate. Now think what Jesus is saying by his example of long-suffering. Jesus is saying, you're making me very uncomfortable. 
You're going to bring great pain into my life. As a matter of fact, you're going to take my life. I have the power to do something about it. You listen to this? I have the power to do something about it. And I choose to suffer long. That is strength. That is love according to God. That's the more excellent way. You've injured me. You've hurt me. I have the power to do something about it. And instead, I choose love. We could go to so many scriptures to help see this. But let's go to 1 Peter, the second chapter. 1 Peter, the second chapter. Please turn, if you will. Let's look at, at verse 20 through 24. And notice how Peter, 1 Peter, the second chapter, 20 through 24. Notice how Peter is writing here in paragraphs about, if you go earlier in 1 Peter, the second chapter, he's writing about us being God's special people. In other words, if we belong to God, we're different from the world. And he's about to go through, through some examples of teachings that are very different. And so he's already talked about submission to government, that we're going to be submissive people. And now we're about to read a paragraph where he's talking about if you're a slave or a bondservant, that you're submissive to your owner. And in the verses previous to this, he's talking about, okay, so you as a servant, you go out and you do something wrong and you're punished for doing something wrong, do you think God is going to look down and say, oh, what a wonderful thing. You took your punishment. No, he says God's going to say you deserve your punishment. But now we pick up with, with a little change of pace here in verse 20. What if you go and you have a master that is cruel to you and you've done everything right toward that master? You've done all the jobs that he's asked you to do. You've treated that master with respect. And now let's read in verse 20. For what credit is it if... When you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. You, you want to be a Christian? This is what you were called to do. Because Christ also suffered, long-suffering, for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Now notice this line, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Isn't this amazing? He's saying, listen, let me show you the example of what Jesus said. You see what he's doing? He's saying, look, I know you can be in a difficult situation at work. He said, I understand your master as a servant can really mistreat you. And so now we all understand why. The servant would say, I'm a Christian. I want to know, God, what do you want me to do in this difficult situation? He'd say, I want you to take it. What? Yes, I want you to choose to be good in return to this individual. No one would do that. He said, oh, oh yes, someone did do that. Jesus came and he suffered long. And then 
he boldly says, he left an example that we could follow in his steps. Oh, a lot of the time we'll say it like it's a warm, cozy feeling. I want to be just like Jesus. Oh, I want to follow in the steps of Jesus. Brethren, do you realize over and over in scriptures what it means to follow Jesus is it means that you give up happiness oftentimes. You give up comfort oftentimes because your relationship with God is worth more than the moment's emotion. And what we are willing to do is we are willing to suffer because we believe that the cause and the one that we follow is greater than whatever we're going through at the moment. We realize that whatever suffering that we have in this moment is temporary and that the glory that waits us, Paul says in Romans 8th chapter, is worth whatever pain and suffering that we go through here. And someone says, I don't believe someone would suffer like that. And God would say, anybody that's going to be a follower of my son will suffer like that. Brother, my plea to you today is to realize that whatever Americanized form of Christianity we've created that says that suffering is something I do not want to do and I have a right to avoid it, you don't have a right to be a Christian and think like that. God demands us to follow in the steps of the suffering Savior. And then the irony somewhat is that as he uses that same example of Jesus going to the cross in that suffering, he says in 24, hey, haven't you died to sin? And, and then notice that last part of 24, that mid to the last part. He says, having died to sins, might live for righteousness? So he's saying, wait a minute, I, you're, you're saying you're having a problem with suffering, but I thought you became a Christian. And when you became a Christian, you said, I'm going to crucify the sin in my life just like Christ was crucified for my sin. In other words, I'm going to put that sinful life to death. Okay? And then when I resurrected out of that, that burial, that water, when I resurrected, what did I commit to? Peter says, didn't you commit to what? A life of righteousness. Do you see what Peter's doing here? He's looking at those slaves that were having to go through difficult times with, with masters that were unfair and cruel. And he's saying, but now you realize that's the life you signed up for. When you said that I want to become a Christian, you crucified the sinful nature that would seek back in vengeance. And instead you said, I want a more excellent way. I want to face everything today on the standard of righteousness. What is the righteous thing for me to do? And how powerful is that? You ever heard the expression, monkey see, monkey do? Little Preston was a six-month-old in Wichita Zoo. Just recently, his video became viral because it was so cute to watch him interact through the glass with a little monkey. And you can imagine what that little monkey did. That little monkey started doing everything Preston did. And as he would reach out, the monkey would reach out. He's put his hands out, the monkey put his hands out. Do you realize that that is just an animal? It's primal. It's a very base nature of us that by nature we imitate others. Please grab this point. You and I can go through our life living a carnal nature that says, I'm going to imitate you. If you hurt me, I guarantee you I'll hurt you back. Or we could live by a higher nature. It's spiritual. 
It's called the more excellent way in 1 Corinthians 12 and 31. 1 Peter 2, he would call it the righteous way. And what is it? It says, you know what? I'm not a monkey. I'm not going to imitate you. You can hurt me and I will not hurt you in return. You can make me unhappy and I won't seek to make you unhappy in return. What are you going to do? I'm not going to reflect you. Instead, I'm going to look to God for a righteous response to our situation. That is the only way to suffer long. In loving kindness, I've just got to mention this and we'll close. 1 Corinthians 13 and 4, we oftentimes think about kindness being, well, uh, I know that so-and-so's in the hospital. I want to do something nice for them. I'm going to send them a card. When they come home, I'm going to take them some food. I'm going to be kind. I know so-and-so is starting college in just a few weeks. I want to do something kind. I want to send them a little care package. Look, those things are loving. But that's not the way this word is used here. Kindness here is still linked to one that would be creating pain in our life. And when you read this concept out of the Old Testament, Many of your translations in the Old Testament is going to call it loving kindness. And the loving kindness ties back to a merciful response. In other words, this person has now heard us and we've made the decision. I want to keep the ball in my court. I am making the decision that I'm not going to be monkey do as monkey sees. You've hurt me. I'm not going to hurt you back. Instead, I'm going to look up and I'm going to say, God, what do you want me to do? See, that's long-suffering. I've decided not to retaliate. God, what do, you, what do you want me to do? And God would say, now I want you to respond. Oh, really? I'd like to just ignore them. No, I don't want you to ignore them. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? Notice it's long-suffering and kind. They're joined together. He says, I want you to respond. Oh, what do you want me to do, God? I'd love to tell them off. I'd love to put them in their place. I'd like to bring harm into their life. He says, no. I want you now to be merciful. I want you to practice a merciful type of kindness. I want you to offer something that they need at this point instead of something that would punish them at this point. And it's powerful. You know this next little picture, it just kind of says it all, doesn't it? Don't you like that? What about if the ones that were perceived to be our enemies, instead we said, I want to study them to see how I could help them, how I could serve them. And since we're running out of time, let me just run immediately to Romans, the 12th chapter. At the end of Romans, the 12th chapter, he's telling us not to seek our own vengeance, let God seek it. And then he's about to say in the 13th chapter, if it's a matter of civil affairs, God has created the government to be ministers to execute wrongdoers. And so, in, in other words, if it's personal, let God handle the vengeance. If it's, if it's of, a, of a civil nature, let the government handle the vengeance. And so right between these two, literally the end of the personal and the beginning of, of the government, notice what he says in 12 and 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You and I can choose an evil response, and what we've done when we choose an evil response is we've been overcome by evil. Or we can say, you know what, I'm going to pause. I'm going to suffer long. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to monkey do, monkey sees here, what the monkey sees. And so instead I'm going to look, God, what do you want? I got the ball in my court. What do you want me to do? I want you to pass the ball back. Okay, what kind of ball I pass back? God, he said, I want you to pass back. Loving kindness. I want you to do something. God, they just hurt me and you want me. I want you to do something they need in their life. You've got to be kidding me. 
And we pour out the words, no one would do that. And God would say, people that are like me would do that. Because I sent my son, Romans the fifth chapter, to not ignore you while you were my enemies. He said, I sent my son to die for you while you were my enemies. That's humiliating. That I would even think that I have the right as a child of God to put people in their place. What I learned today. I learned that love is a more excellent way, but it will often be a more painful way also. But for eternity, it's worth it. Number two, I learned that love isn't a pursuit of happiness, but of holiness. Listen, you'll never get that one from America, so you're going to have to decide if you want to be a Christian or if you want to be an American slant Christian. I'm amazed. I've heard it this week already several times from individuals and on the radio and on TV. The talk of we deserve to be happy. If your pursuit is happiness, you will become carnal and fleshly. Our pursuit is holiness. I want to be like God. Number three, great strength and love lies not in the fact of giving someone what you have the power to give them. Instead, it's give them what is right to give them. And number four, God demands a response. He demands a merciful, kindness-type response. And so I'll leave you this morning with this question. How will you apply this lesson of love this week to your life? We spent a lot of time in last week's lesson looking how God calls love the greatest, the most important. And now we get into just a little bit this morning and we realize what he calls the greatest and most important is not easy. I really believe we'd have to devote our life to trying to get this right and we'll still find out all along the way we still have a long way to go. So this morning's lesson is not about who here has arrived in what we've studied. This morning's lesson is about who's willing to devote their life to what we've studied. And if we can help you along that way, we'd love to encourage you. We'd love to pray for you. If you're ready to become a Christian, we'd love to help you be immersed into Christ. If you'd love to be restored, we'd love to pray with you and for you. If we can help you, come as we